think we're gonna get started here. So you can wrap up your conversations and then we'll dive in here. Well, it's nice to see people still a little jittery after at least the for the guys it was a long weekend of men's ministry and we were blessed by the teaching of the word and not only the teaching of the word but the teaching of how to study the word and so we're actually going to do a little bit more of that today so I'm excited to dive in with you guys for that. So, um, yes, I'm filling in. Sorry to disappoint. Uh, Steve, uh, this would have been his sixth time teaching the last few days, so he needs a break. So he's going to be teaching this morning, in uh, preaching this morning in the main service. And then, of course, we have our Q&A tonight, so he's going to need to be fully ready to go for that as well. So uh, in terms of your papers, you may have noticed you did some of you turn in papers last week. I haven't returned those back to you. I actually haven't been able to grade those yet, uh, mostly due to the fact that we were at men's retreat uh, this weekend. So I was preoccupied, but uh, it is, uh, I'll get to those here hopefully this week and then uh, get those back to you. So thank you for your understanding and patience on that. As you can tell by the slide, we are not doing our normal study, but it is kind of related to Module 7 items. Uh, This is Bible interpretation, hermeneutics, especially as it relates to New Testament use of the Old Testament. And this is a study that I've enjoyed in the past in my own studies, and I want to help you think those things through. I've called it a workshop because I want it to be something that you feel comfortable participating in. Uh, You don't have to answer any questions. I'm not going to call upon anyone, but I will allow opportunity for you to engage and to try and figure this out with me as we walk these things through because this is a, it's actually done best when you're engaging the text yourself and you're not just being taught it just from a pulpit that you're just kind of being given the information but that you're actually participating in it as well so i hope that you'll enjoy enjoy this and uh enjoy the opportunity that we have to be able to study these things together um let me go and pray for us and then we'll dive in and and we'll look into a couple passages here father your word is absolutely true And it is amazing that the more that we study your word, the more that we catch up to understanding how true it really is. We actually see that in our society. The more scientific we get, the more exact that we get, the more precise that we get in our society, the more that we actually see how your word is more true than they even thought it was. It's amazing to see science catch up to the Bible. It's amazing to see archaeology catch up to the Bible. Because your word is true down to every every word and even the spelling of words. Lord, help us to see that today. We can't see it exhaustively. It's too much for us. There's too much in your word to see it comprehensively. But help us to see a glimpse of that this morning. And Lord God, may you be honored and may you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your Bibles over to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. 
the three pass I've got three passages this morning. I don't even know if we're going to make through all three, but I have three prepared. Romans chapter 2 is the first one, and all three of these are in Romans. Mostly because I did a lot of my studies in Romans going back to seminary days, so I feel very comfortable with these passages. But you may be familiar with the fact that Romans quotes the Old Testament almost more than any other book of the Bible, or any other book of the New Testament, I should say. So Romans chapter 2 is going to be the focus of where we take our first New Testament use of the Old Testament, a.k.a. where New Testament author quotes the Old Testament, and it's a pretty clear indication that he's quoting from it. He's not just alluding to it or just kind of mentioning an idea from it. Um, By the way, quick tidbit. Steve has taught this already so well, so I don't need to set too much of a foundation for this. But when you're looking at New Testament uses of the Old Testament and it gets hard and you reach some crux problematic ones. You're like, I don't understand how those relate. There are two things that I would recommend to you that will be very helpful in sometimes solving the more difficult ones and how they align properly with the original context of the Old Testament. We would believe here at this church, and I strongly believe this, that the author always is careful never to reinterpret the Old Testament. He never does that. He never reinterprets it. He never substitutes his own meaning and says, this is now what this really means. He never does that. In the sense that it would replace the original meaning of the text. Never does that. But still, there are passages that are difficult, aren't there? It makes it seem as though the author is substituting his own meaning into the text. Two things that would be helpful. One is a concept called corporate solidarity. Corporate solidarity. Not to give you terms that are difficult to spell on a Sunday morning, but corporate solidarity. It means that one represents many. One represents many. Jesus represents us. That's the most common corporate solidarity that we have in Scripture that we know about. That often will help you understand sometimes what is going on. Corporate solidarity. Another one that I've taught on here, and if you're wondering what this is, there is a recorded sermon on this, and it's called Recapitulation. Recapitulation. It solves many problems with New Testament use of the Old Testament. Many a problems. I can't tell you how many times as I study through the New Testament, I highlight with my pencil the times where there are New Testament uses of the Old Testament. And then I'm cataloging every single instance to see can this be justified with the Old Testament context. And many times I put a little R-E and I circle it because it stands for recapitulation, because I see that there is a repeating of events taking place. Okay, that's important. I just wanted to put that on your purview, and there might be other times where I can dive into more detail on that. Today, that's not quite the focus, but you might see some of this stuff picked up in the passages that we're going to address this morning. Okay, Romans chapter 2. Take a look with me at verse 24. Look at verse 24, and I'm going to see if this guy works. Yeah, it does. Very good. There we go. He's quoting which passage? 
Yeah, good. I mean, it's not like it's on the screen or anything, but right? Isaiah 52, verse 5. Yes. All right, let's take a look at this here. And I actually am going to be soliciting readers today. I need help reading the text, okay? Uh, so I need a volunteer to read this very short verse, Romans 2, verse 24. Yeah, Christopher, yeah. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Hey, I'm glad you raised your hand. You have that voice that everyone can hear. That's perfect. Thank you. Yes, this is a a verse that you might be very familiar with. And does anybody want to take a stab at usually what's being talked about here? Why? Why is it that God's name is being blasphemed? What is Paul saying here? Has anybody like done study on this passage before, or if you looked into that? And it's okay. You don't. You're probably not used to like jumping in, so it's okay. I can go ahead and answer that. Oh, hey, we do. Yes, Kathy. Exactly. That's right. Their sin has led to this blasphemy, and. The typical idea here, and we'll look at this in just a moment, is that the Gentiles are like, hey, you're not living up to the holy standard, right? Your hypocrisy is what we're basically blaspheming. Does that make sense? That's generally how it's taken. You'll see that in just a moment. So the idea here, that the the question I want to ask you here is, is Paul saying that God is blasphemed by Gentiles because the Jews are not holy enough? That's the question that you need to ask. Is that an appropriate approach to this New Testament use of the Old Testament? Is that what's going on? And to prove the point of how this is generally done, I decided to take three popular commentaries on Romans, guys that I generally like to read, and see what they say, okay? And here is what they say. This is standard explanations for this New Testament use of the Old Testament. All right, this is from Douglas Moo. He's like one of my, he's basically like my favorite Romans commentary guy, okay? Perhaps, he says, Paul intends the reader to see the irony in having responsibility for dishonoring God's name, listen to this carefully, transferred from the Gentiles to the people of Israel, okay? There is this kind of transferring of blame going on here. That's being transferred from the Gentiles to the people of Israel. Okay, and let me just uh, give you another example and it'll fill in maybe more of what that means. Okay, here's another one from, I think it's Robert Mounts, I think is what it is. Uh, Throughout the Gentile world, the Jews' hypocritical conduct had led others to blaspheme the name of God intended to represent God to the nations, that's, this would be the Jews, they had caused others to hold him in contempt. By their conduct, they had disgraced the God they professed to worship. So again, it seems like he's saying the Gentiles are blaspheming God's name because of, hey, you Jews are not living up to his holy standard. 
And then, Leon Morris, in the Pillar New Testament commentary series, says, how accurate was Paul in making such a charge? Then he uh, cites another commentary, uh, commentator, Barrett. Barrett thinks that Jewish living as well as Jewish monotheism impressed the Gentiles. This is fascinating. Wow, they were like, we love the fact that you're monotheistic. Interesting. He says, he sees the point of Paul's charge in the fact that there is no man who is not guilty of theft, adultery, and sacrilege when these are strictly and radically understood, understood, end quote. Interesting. So the Gentiles are, wow, amazed by monotheism. And so they're like, hey, you're not living up to this really holy standard as a Jew. So Gentiles are despising God's name because the Jews are not living up to God's holy standard. What is the problem with this? Do you see problems with this? Okay, I'm going to give you a couple of them, but I kind of give me a little bit of time just for you to kind of think about that. Are there problems here? I want you to see that even on your own. Well, one problem with this is that pagan Gentiles are expecting Jews to be holy. Does that make sense? Does that seem normal? Does that fit with how... Pagan Gentiles, even Israel's enemies, expected Israel to live? That doesn't make sense to me. It actually hasn't ever made sense to me. Okay, another problem. If pagan Gentiles are so concerned with Jews living up to a standard, why is, listen, God being blasphemed and not the who? The Jews. What does the text say? Look back, look at the text. For the name of who? God. Why isn't it your name is being blasphemed among the Gentiles? This doesn't make sense. We have to have a better answer than that. Something's not right. So the question is, is Paul just reinterpreting the Old Testament with his own words, coming up with his own conclusions? Is he misunderstanding Isaiah 52? Let's look at Isaiah 52. But before we do, let me just say this. The key overlooked feature, I think, that is missing here often is the historical background. There is something that people are missing when it comes to the historical background here that is uh, needs to be reassessed. Let's look at Isaiah 52. Turn your Bibles over to Isaiah 52. And I'll take a reader. We'll start in verse 1. And I reserve the right to stop you in the middle of the reading because sometimes I want to, like, bring out points. Okay? It's actually very effective. Uh, Sorry, for me, not for you, but it's effective. (laughs) But... Does somebody want to read for me, starting in verse 1, and then I'll let you know when we can... I might interrupt you in the middle of that. Like, I don't want to be interrupted, so... <laughs> yeah, Russell. <clears throat> awake, awake. Clothe yourself in strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your glorious garments. O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the, for the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. 
Okay, we'll stop right there for a second. So we have here a call to Jerusalem to wake up. And in context here, this is talking about, hey, get up because you're going to be redeemed from exile. I'm bringing you back. It's like get your it's like it's personifying Jerusalem and it's saying get your best clothing on prepare for the ceremony this is our return okay just want to make sure you understand the context here so there's a context of being redeemed from exile okay and continue for thus says Yahweh you were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money okay so let's stop right there so Yahweh says you were sold for nothing what does that mean? It means there was a marketplace, and literally they were taken off the trade market by someone else other than God, and no one had to pay for them. What does that basically mean when you take something without paying for it? What's that called? Stealing. Stealing. Yeah. They were stolen from God. Right? So God says, this isn't, I'm not doing anything like new here. When I buy you back, I'm not going to pay them. I'm not going to pay the Assyrians. I'm not going to pay the Babylonians. I'm going to get you back. I'm going to steal you back. You're mine. Okay, verse 4. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, for thus says Lord Yahweh, my people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them. Okay, good. That's perfect. So, look at that. This is really interesting. My people went down to Egypt to sojourn there. And then what would you expect? Who should be oppressing them at that point? Egypt. Egypt. Why does it say Assyria? Recapitulation. Right? That's it. Because you have a nation that is walking in the shoes of Egypt and its history is repeating itself. Okay? Yes? But in Isaiah, in the section that you're talking about, that's God bringing those other nations to them, uh, punishment to them. Yes. It, it morally. Yes. The, the punishment that he brought to those nations for what, for what they did physically. Right. The Hebrews. Yes. Yes. God is going to be judging the nations as well in this process. That's right. Am I, am I understanding your point? I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> it's, it sounds like that. Um, I understand what you're saying, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, God will be God will be bringing the nations. Or are you saying that he's bringing the nations with them when he brings them back from exile? No, no, not at all. Okay. Yeah. Well, he he will be punishing those nations. That's and that that's true too. And eventually those nations will be redeemed back, but that's at a later time and they will actually come what it says they will stream to Jerusalem. So, yeah. Hopefully that. If if you want, you can always ask another question if that helps. So yeah, it's great. All right, good. So now that's you can see how Assyria is now walking in those footsteps, just like Egypt. Interesting. Okay. Now, uh, verse five. So now, what do I have here? Declares Yahweh, since my people have been taken away for nothing. Yahweh declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. There it is. There's the quote. Okay? There's the quote. Now, just removing Romans from your, like, 
mind for a second, okay? Don't even think about Romans. Pretend like he never quoted Isaiah 52. What do you think from this context he's saying? Why is God's name being despised by the Gentiles? Because they're just stealing his people and doing whatever they want. They're doing whatever they want with them, which makes God look like what? Like he doesn't care. He's not able to do anything. Exactly. That's it. He's not able. God's a pushover, right? This is really important to understand that there is a there is something embedded in the background here of what I would call a competition of gods. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. But it, it basically is showing that God is a, a pushover. And here's some a key misconceptions I would argue here in this text. One, there is, when we're talking about the Romans text, where there's a misidentification of Paul's reason for blasphemy. For, 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 for blasphemy. We think Paul is saying that God is blasphemed directly because of the Jewish hypocrisy. In other words, basically, the Jews are technically being blasphemed because they're being hypocritical. And though Jewish hypocrisy, what Paul's point is, though the hypocrisy and the sin of the Jews has a part to play in that, that is not why the Gentiles are blaspheming God. That's not why they're blaspheming God. What is, again, the context? Why are they blaspheming God in Isaiah 52? Because he's a what? A pushover, right? He can't save them. And their gods, in their mind, are stronger, right? They're better. We're better than you. There is a competition of God's... um, historical background that was everywhere in the Old Testament times and in the New Testament times. They always thought these ways. They even thought in terms of home turf advantage, like sports. Like, if we fight them on their turf, we might lose. But if they come and fight us on our turf, we will certainly win, for our gods are almost equally matched. Right? That's kind of how they thought. That's how they operated. It's fascinating that they actually did that. Turn your Bibles over really quick to Numbers 14. Numbers 14. This is so interesting. This is actually part of the logic of the Old Testament. We don't, it's not just a background concept that we see extra biblically. It's something that we actually see explicitly mentioned in the text. And I'll take a reader starting in verse 13 for this here. Some other brave soul. Uh, oh, sorry. This is Numbers 14, verse 13. But Moses said to Yahweh, Then the Egyptians will appear to this, for by your power you brought up this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They, will, they have heard that you, O Yahweh, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Yahweh, are seen eye to eye, while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you put this people to death as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, Because Yahweh was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore to them, Therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Very good. You see that? You hear it in verse 16 uh, specifically? Because Yahweh was not what? Able. Able. That's in the consciousness. Like when anything goes wrong, 
with, between Israel and God. When anything goes wrong, that's the first thought that anyone thinks. Well, now it's going to make it look like what? You, God, were not what? Able. That is the context of Isaiah 52 as well. Isaiah 52 has that completely embedded in its theology, and that is why they, the Gentiles are blaspheming God. And you can also see this in Ezekiel 20, verse 9. We're not going to go over there, but you're welcome to look at that on your own time. It's fascinating. God will be shown to not be able to save his people. At least it comes across that way. What was that reference? Oh, Ezekiel 20, uh, verse 9. And then there's a third misconception. This is a misconception on the New Testament side. We tend to think Israel's no longer in exile when it comes to the New Testament. That's not true. They're still what? In exile. Do they own the land for themselves? No. Do they have a king that rules over them? No. They're still what? In exile. Do you see the parallel now between Isaiah 52 and Romans 2? Israel's in exile. The Gentiles are despising their God because he's too weak to save them. What do you think Romans 2 is all about? Israel's in exile, and the Gentiles are despising God. Why? Because what? He's not able to save them. And why does it why are they still in exile? Because of their sin. You see what Paul's doing? The Gentiles are blaspheming God's name because you are still in exile because of your sin, because of your unbelief. Does that make sense? That brings clarity to a New Testament use of the Old Testament. It brings precision. And hopefully it shows that the Bible doesn't just use terms randomly or flippantly, and it doesn't use passages from the Old Testament randomly or flippantly. It doesn't. Okay, so if I could summarize this, Israel is still in exile because of their hypocrisy and unbelief. This is from the Romans' perspective. This is the New Testament context. This is what Paul is dealing with. Israel is still in exile because of their hypocrisy and unbelief. If they had, if the nation had stopped being hypocritical, if the nation had stopped their unbelief and actually believed in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would the kingdom have then been ushered in and would they be in exile anymore? Exactly. They wouldn't, right? They would, they would not be in exile anymore. The kingdom would have been ushered in, right? So it's, they're still in exile because of this unbelief. And Paul knows that. And he's, he's drawing this theology from the old Testament and saying, this is a recapitulation happening again. This is happening again to you. Just like there was unbelief that led to exile in Israel uh, during the days of Assyria and Babylon, so also, Israel, you are still in exile, and you are still in unbelief, and the Gentiles are still mocking you because you will not repent. So then I, I put there as well, and the Gentiles still mock God because he appears to be a pushover, and he can't save them. Okay, so that's how I would generally summarize this New Testament use of the Old Testament. Any questions on this one before we jump to another one? Yeah, dear. So then what is he trying to tell them to do in Romans? Yeah, that's a good question. 
So, should we just do a whole study on Romans right now? Um, I'm just kidding. It's great. Yeah. What's Paul actually really saying? Yeah. So Paul is in the middle of a rhetorical, a rhetorical debate. That means he's got an imaginary Jewish opponent in his head that he's using as a teaching tactic to his mostly Gentile readers to teach them how to reason with the Jewish skeptic. There's a whole background there I could get into. Hey, you should come to the um, GTA, I call it GTA, the Grace Theological Academy thing in June, because I'm going to be doing a whole thing on Romans, and we'll lay that out. But if you notice in Romans 2.17, he says, but if you bear the name Jew... Right, the Jews we talk about. You're like, oh, he's talking to somebody in his audience who's got who's Jewish. No, because it's a singular you; it's not a plural you. Anytime he talks to his audience in Romans, it's always plural, always plural, always plural. If he's using singulars, he uses singular yous eighty-five to eighty-six times. That's incredible in Romans. They are almost always always rhetorical, meaning that he's got some kind of imaginary person that he's talking to. He's not schizophrenic. He's doing it as a debate tactic. He's talking to this person to teach them. We do this all the time when we're trying to put ourselves in the shoes of someone else and teach a story to people. Like it, This really works with kids uh, when you're teaching them. You, you kind of put a live like you know, debate. And like, but well, this guy would say this, but I'm saying, no, you're wrong. And, you know, that's what Paul's doing. That's where he kind of kicks that off in chapter two. And he's talking to this imaginary Jew so the Gentiles would know how to reason with such a person. And so he's t- basically teaching them and arguing with them. You have Old Testament precedent to tell this Jew that their sin is still keeping them in exile. That's what he's basically saying. So I can... We can talk more about that, too, if we want. Yep. All right, good. Any other questions? Good? Okay. Let's move on to another one. I'd like to at least get one more done. Um, it'd be great to get all three done today. That would be a miracle. Let's talk about Romans 9. Romans 9. This one, uh, Steve's going to get a big smile on his face in, in 10 minutes because be, the Spirit will come upon him and be like, Something wonderful just happened in BTI. Um, because we're going to talk about covenant theology and dispensational theology in this one. This is great. Uh, yeah. This is the quote from Hosea 2, verse 23. I'm going to reverse this one a little bit. Let's actually go... Well, let's go to... No, let's go to Hosea 2 first, okay? Let's go to Hosea 2. Hosea 2, verse, let's look at verse 22, and I'll take a reader, starting in verse 22. I mean, not everyone all at once, it's a little overwhelming. Yeah, Kayla. And the earth will respond to the new wine and the new oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself and very good awesome this is the quote this verse 23 is where the quote is we'll, we'll look at that in a second in romans that's where the quote is now i wanted to go to hosea first because i wanted you to see this text before you saw the romans text who is hosea talking about here what group of people? Just from Hosea's context. 
Who is he talking about? If you look at verse 22, what place name does he use there? He's, he's using the term Jezreel, right? Where is Jezreel? In Israel. It's in Israel. Okay? But you can also see other examples. If you go back to earlier in chapter 2, excuse me, actually look at even chapter 1, verse 10. He's talking about the number of the sons of Israel being like the sand of the sea. Yeah? How about verse 11? The sons of Judah, the sons of Israel will be gathered together. Yes? You have instances here, a context here of Israel. And back into even earlier in chapter 1, you see Jezreel occur multiple times. That would be like in verse 4. I think it's verse 4. Yes, verse 4. And then you have Israel occur in verse 4. And you have Israel occur in verse 5. And Jezreel in verse 5. So who is this about? Israel, right? Israel and Judah. I don't think, like, you can really get around that at this point, at least from just understanding Hosea's context. Now, let's go over to Romans. Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. Oh, this is so fun. This is going to be great. Uh, this is so good. Okay. Romans 9. Let's start reading in verse 24. I'm going to go ahead and just read for us on this one. Whom also he called us, not only from Jews, but also from Gentiles. As also he says in Hosea, I will call uh, she who is not my people, my people. And she who is not beloved, beloved. And it will be in the place in which it was called about them. You are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. Uh-oh. Whoops. Who is Paul referring to here? The Gentiles. Oh, no. Covenant theology is right. Doesn't it feel like that? This is like one of their number one passages to go to. Because he basically takes the Gentiles, and he substitutes them back into the Old Testament and replaces Israel. There you go. Here's replacement theology. Paul replaced Israel with the Gentiles. So now the church replaces Israel. Israel has no more place. And then our whole scaffolding falls apart, right? Not quite. Hold on. Hold on. Let's slow down and introduce the question to start. Is Paul reinterpreting Hosea 2 to change the meaning of God's people from Israel to Gentiles. Man, it sure looks like it. Sure looks like it. And let's look at the commentators. Where do you think they're going to land, most of these commentators? Yeah. This is why Steve's been saying most evangelicals today are covenantal in their theology. It's passages like this that cause them to lean this direction. Let's look at the same three commentators here. And again, I love these commentaries, especially Moo. I'm not, I do not want to disparage against these. Com- I highly, the number one commentary I would recommend for you for Romans is Moo's commentary. It is that thick, and I'm not exaggerating. And it is awesome. It is such a good commentary. Just beware of the landmines of covenant theology. Otherwise, it's incredible. 
It's an incredible commentary. It's one of the most exhaustive, understandable commentaries to a layperson you could ever have. It's incredible. He says, but a potentially more serious, I love how he calls it serious. At least he takes it seriously. He's like, wow, this is, seems odd. A more serious instance of what seems to be arbitrary hermeneutics. He's just kind of, Paul's being random with how he interprets his Old Testament. On Paul's part is his application of these Hosea texts to the calling of Gentiles. Why would he do that? Now he says the problem would disappear, basically, if Hosea would be including the Gentiles in his prophecy. Like, in other words, if we went to Hosea and we said, hey, you know, he's talking about Gentiles there in the context. That would make this really easy. But Hosea is not doing that. We saw that. He's talking about the Jews. So then this is where Mu lands. We must conclude that this text reflects a hermeneutical supposition, sorry, big words here, for which we find evidence elsewhere in Paul and in the New Testament. What is it? Okay, you finally getting to the point. Okay, what is, what is it that we must conclude? That Old Testament predictions of a renewed Israel find their fulfillment in the church. Do you hear what he's saying? Anything you see of Israel in the Old Testament, replace it for who? The church. Well, at least the renewed parts. All the bad stuff still gets laid on Israel. That's another thing. But it's kind of like pick and choose your theology. Okay, whatever. That's kind of the readers in the driver's seat at that point. But, all right, that's Mu. How about Mounts? And I love Mounts. Mounts is like one of like the like sweetest like personalities you'd ever come across. So I, again, I highly recommend his Greek stuff. He's got such good stuff. Mounts. So Paul was saying that God had brought together in his new order. This, so in other words, Paul's basically saying there's a whole new order of things that God's doing that's replacing what he used to do. Uh, his new order, those of faith, regardless of their national background, although he worked out his redemptive plan through his son Jesus, who was a descendant of David, meaning he's a Jew, in terms of his human nature, his new people are comprised of those who are Gentile by birth as well as Jewish. He doesn't say it as directly, but it, he's basically implying the church replaces what? Israel. Okay? All right, let's look at Leon Morris. The prophet is referring to the ten tribes of Israel. That's referring to Hosea. He's referring to Israel. But Paul applies the words to the Gentiles. And you can also see this, he says, in 1 Peter 2, verse 10. That's a whole other New Testament use of the Old Testament. We'll deal with that some other time. The point, apparently, is that the sin of the ten tribes had been such as to place them outside of the people of God. Whoa, he goes really hard on this. Their sin has now removed them permanently from the people of God. You hear that? And the only way, you could, I mean, he's thinking, they always are talking nationally here, folks, not individually. Covenant theology, for the most part, believes that Jews are still included in the church as the people of God, but no longer nationally will they be saved. There's a kind of a permanent removal, okay? All right, so that's what Leon Morris would say. Now, what are the problems? What are the problems here in this? First off, the problem, one of the big problems is the context of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Where is this passage in Romans that we're looking at? It's in Romans 9, right? 
That's the New Testament use of the Old Testament we're looking at. It's from Romans 9. The very context of Romans 9 does not actually favor this really well. Uh, If you flip back a page or so in your Bible to Romans 9, verse 6, this is really interesting. I love this, because Paul's whole point is to say God's promises to Israel have not failed. Verse 9, it is not as though the word of God has what? Failed. In regards to what? In regards to his people, Israel. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. You see, there's two different uses of Israel there. Clearly, and I think almost all scholars would agree with this, the first use of Israel, not all who are descended from Israel, must clearly be national Israel. Corporate national Israel. Not all who are descended from national Israel are Israel, like true Israelite of the faith and of the heart. Does that make sense? Hopefully you can agree with that. Hopefully that's not like super unclear. Okay, So he is using two different uses of Israel. That's totally fine. That's fair. That's exactly what he's been doing. The New Testament, it's been very common for him to do that. Now, turn over to Romans 11. I'm just giving you the the background and the context of where this quote is falling in. Romans 11, verse 25. Romans 11, verse 25. For I do not want you... And he uses the plural you there. So who is he talking to? His audience. Not to a rhetorical person. I want you... I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of this mystery so that you may not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to who? Israel. And the question is, which one must this be? Is this national Israel or the elect Israel? Should be national Israel, right? I don't think elect Israel would be having a partial hardening happening to them. Does that make sense? Right? Doesn't make sense. So he's got to be talking about national Israel. And I he was reading Mu on this, and he's like, yeah, my theology is kind of getting unwound here at this point. But yeah, I mean, he wasn't saying that exactly. But he's like, this is national Israel. It's got to be national Israel, right? Um, this has happened in part until when? Until the fullness of the Gentiles should come. And then, in this way, all who? Israel will be saved. Now, we just defined Israel as what? Elect Israel or national Israel? National. So what is Israel? What, what, what does the context demand that that Israel in verse 26 is? National. Does that make sense? It has to be. Like, you'd have to break hermeneutical rules to do that. So, all... Israel will be saved? That's a problem. And I'm not just trying to go to another book of the Bible to prove that. That's the whole context in which our New Testament use of the Old Testament occurs. So how can you say that the church has now permanently replaced Israel if all national Israel will be saved? It doesn't make any sense. The context means that this doesn't make any sense. Second, and this is really, really important, the grammar. Do you want to know where the really difficult conundrums and debates of Scripture, where they rise and fall? It's on the grammar. And most of you are like, oh, I do not like grammar. Yeah, I know. 
But this is where they rise and fall. They rise and fall on grammar. The more you understand grammar and how grammar works in Scripture, the more crystal clear Scripture becomes. I cannot overemphasize that. It just does. Look at verse 25. Oh, sorry, go back to Romans 9, verse 25. Romans 9, verse 25. The grammar here is so important. Man, time goes fast. Okay. And with that, what do you think the key overlook feature of this text is? It's grammar. It's the grammar. It's so funny because Moo acknowledges it. I went to Moo uh, the most because I just love Moo. He thinks really well. He acknowledges it, and then he sweeps it away, sadly, and he didn't give a, really an explanation. Well, well, Paul wouldn't require that. Why? The grammar shows it. And then he uses that very argument for the next New Testament, use the Old Testament, we're about ready to see in Romans. And the grammar doesn't require it there. But he go ahead, goes ahead and uses any. It's really, he, he basically speaks hypocritically on those two passages. It's incredible. Okay. So here, I would argue, are the key misconceptions. And it's really um, just one. And it's this word like or as. What is the first? It should be the first word in your English text. What is the first word in verse 25? As. That's not a throwaway word. It's not also a word that we put in there that doesn't really correspond to a Greek word. We just do it for translation clarity. It is associated to a Greek word that's very specific in the text. It is the word hos. Hos. It is in the Greek text. And just to be sure that you're not like, oh, are there any textual issues on that? No. There's no text. There's no any significant text issues whatsoever on that word. So it's in the text. It's in the original text. Like he says in Hosea is a very important concept. What is like communicating? It's comparison, right? Comparing one thing to another. But also, when you want to think about that kind of more broadly, it's setting a precedent. When you're comparing one thing to another, you're saying this happened in the past. That sets a precedent for this to happen in the what? The future, right? Look over at Luke. Oh my goodness, we have we're almost out of time. Okay, we're gonna we're not gonna do the other one today. We'll do it another time. Don't worry. I actually I wanted to set this up as where we can do these more in the future. Um, if if you want to, we don't have to. But um, Luke twenty, Luke twenty, verse thirty-seven. This is another New Testament use of the Old Testament. All right, notice how he says, where he's talking about Moses, right? You know, that the dead are being raised, right? This is Moses at the burning bush. What does it say? As he says, right? The Lord God, he is Lord God of Abraham and God of, the Lord is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. But he uses the word? As or like. What is he saying? 
if God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by comparison, then he must be the God of everyone who is living. He's showing a comparison. He's saying this sets a precedent for the, the global community of God's people. If God is, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then by comparison, he's the God of everyone who is his people. Okay? And then you have 2 Corinthians 8, verse 15. Sorry, we're going to fly now. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 15. Just as it has been written. See that? Just as it has been written. The one who took much or had much, he did not abound. And the one who had little, he did not lack. What's the idea here? This is talking about Israel when they're gathering manna. Remember that story in the desert? And he's like, hey, just as it happened there, so what? It's also setting a precedent for today. God will always provide for exactly what you need. And then one more example here. Our very context is not very far from the, the passage that we're looking at. Romans 9 verse 13. Just as it has been written. You see that? There it is again. Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Hey, just as God can love Jacob and hate Esau, so it sets a precedent for today that God loves his chosen people and he rejects his unchosen people. Does that make sense? Setting a precedent. So what are we talking about here in this New Testament use of the Old Testament? Using clear comparative terminology. This is back in Romans 9, verse 25. Why are you substituting the Gentiles for Israel? No, he's not substituting. Using clear comparative terminology, Paul asserts that Israel's reinstatement as God's people opens the door or sets the precedent for Gentiles to also be God's people. Do you understand? He's not saying this is the meaning of Hosea 2. He's not. He's not saying that, well, this now reinterprets Hosea 2. It doesn't. He's using like or as. Very important grammar to set up two parallel things that exist at the same time. Israel is God's people. Yes. And so can the Gentiles. Why? Why is this a precedent? Because Israel was God's people from the time that they were redeemed from, from Egypt. And then their sin... The whole argument of Hosea 2 is their sin made them not his people, right? You are not my people. You are not shown compassion. You are not beloved. In other words, they became, they went from his people to not his people. You understand? But then the whole argument of Hosea is that, but I will bring you what? Back. I will resurrect you. It's like you died and I will raise you again. So, Think about this. Paul's just basically saying, if Jews, who were once God's people, sinned so badly that they became not his people, and then he's still going to bring them back, can't he do that to Gentiles now because they've always not been God's people all along? If he did it to Israel, his beloved people, who just despised him so much that he was like, I'm done with you, 
then why couldn't he also now do that for the Gentiles? This is why the theology of Hosea is saying it opens the door for the possibility of Gentiles being included into the people of God. Does that make sense? Is that incredible? That's the incredible logic of Hosea 2. You should do a study on Hosea 1 and 2. I mean, the whole book of Hosea, if you have time. But maybe it's one of those passages that you want to pick from retreat. You're like, I want to pick just that verse or that, those couple verses there. Whatever it is, that theology is showing us that God, because Israel sinned, this is incredible, because Israel sinned and rejected God, it just opened the door for God's grace to even abound to everybody. He can save people who are rejected. So that means he can save Gentiles who were never his people to begin with. It's incredible. And you're like, is that really true? Like, are you just kind of like filling in the gaps? That's exactly what Paul argues in Romans 11. God has shut up all to what? Disobedience. All. Gentiles and Jews. Why? So that he may show mercy to all. That's his whole point. That's the whole point of this whole Romans 9, 10, 11. That he may be God of Jew and Gentile at the same time. Incredible. I'm going to leave you on that. Let's pray, and then we'll, next time, give you a little sneak peek. This is the hardest one of the, of the three, is Romans 10, 18. But we don't have time for it, so let's pray. And we'll go to the morning worship service and worship together. Father, we pray that your word is magnified today and that you are exalted. And that we would understand that we can approach your word confidently because it makes sense. We just need to take time to understand it. Lord, as we prayed at the beginning, we're catching up to the Bible. We're always going to be catching up to the Bible. It's a humbling thing. It's really easy to approach our Bible study and say, I already know what that means. Help us to be careful. Help us to be checking ourselves because we want to honor you, not ourselves. We want to honor you, not our opinions about you. And so, Lord, help us to do that. May you bless us, and may we join the rest of the body here this morning in corporate worship, giving praise to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.